Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. We are so glad that you're here, and we really hope that you're having a very blessed week. You can catch us every week right here on your favorite Catholic radio station at the same time. If you do miss an episode on the radio, just make sure to catch up on one of our podcasts. Or you can go to mncatholic.org slash podcast to find our entire archive. We have nearly 100 episodes. Leave us a comment or a question and make sure to give us a five-star rating so that others will find the podcast more easily. In today's episode, we have a great discussion on a recent Supreme Court case that was heard this fall. A decision in the the case of Fulton versus City of Philadelphia is expected this spring, and it could have vast implications for religious liberty in the United States. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about the role of government involvement in supporting people in need. How much is too little and how much is too much? And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start putting your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we talk about what you can do to support those who are struggling during the holiday season. And listeners, if you have an idea for our bricklayer segment, or maybe you have a question about faith and politics for our mailbag segment, send those our way and then make sure to tune in each week and maybe we'll feature your idea or your question. Send us an email at show at mncatholic.org or catch us on social media. Just search for Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now joined on the line by Nick Reeves. He serves as legal counsel at at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, where his practice is focused on First Amendment and appellate litigation. He is a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law and the University of Notre Dame, where he double majored in economics and political science. Nick has argued multiple cases in both the federal appellate and district courts. Today, we've called up Nick to talk about the Supreme Court case in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia in which he recently represented foster parents and Catholic social services, which were targeted for their religious beliefs. Nick Reeves, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How did you decide to focus your legal career on questions of First Amendment and the free exercise of religion? I I think it really started for me when I learned about some of the cases that Beckett and others had been involved in. And and this, you know, I, I heard about them even before I was a lawyer when I was in college and then also when I was in law school. I just... You know, I heard about the Little Sisters of the Poor, and I heard about other cases in which people of all different faiths, you know, might have had some sort of burden placed on their religion by the government and weren't able to be who they are and exercise their faith. And that was an issue that's important to me. And after I went to law school, I eventually decided to go work at the Beckett Fund to be able to do that full time. The idea of public interest lawyering might be a new concept for some of our listeners. What what does a public interest law firm like Beckett do? What is its mission, and how does it carry out its work in the courts? Beckett is a nonprofit, so we don't charge any of our clients fees for our work. All of our money is raised by donors who understand and who care about and who support Beckett's mission, which is religious liberty for all. So as a nonprofit, all of our lawyers work for individuals of all different faiths. So we've had clients all across the spectrum, from Christians to Muslims to Jews and and everything in between. Our goal is to protect our clients' ability to exercise their religion, to be able to pray and worship and and to speak about their faith, both publicly and, and in their churches. That's our sole goal as an organization. So we litigate these cases, and then we provide educational resources to people who are interested in the issues as well. 
From the Amish to the Zoroastrians, Beckett uh, <laughs> covers them all and takes their cases. Mm-hmm. Why is why is religion an important value to defend? Uh, some people might say, "Well, shouldn't we just defend the true religion?" Or you know, why, why we don't want to defend all, some pe- religious people believe weird things, and a lot of religions are strange. Why does uh, Beckett take the approach of defending religions of all types and of all stripes? Mm-hmm. There are a couple different answers to that question. I, I think the first is kind of a practical answer, and that is that protecting religious liberty for others protects your own religious liberty, too. So when a Muslim man can go into court and win a case of the Supreme Court allowing him to grow a half-inch beard in prison, that precedent can then be used to protect a Catholic who might have a different religious objection. And we've seen that time and time again where cases that we've worked on for one religious organization or one religious person then protects other people with different faiths. You know, another reason that I I won't develop fully here, but, you know, the Catholic Church in Dignitatis Humanae, which is a papal encyclical, really talks about the inherent value of humans seeking the truth and, and, you know, finding religion, the, the pluralism that's needed to allow people to freely choose what they believe. And I think that's another important value that the Catholic Church has recognized. Interesting twist of history. The Catholic Church is now one of the preeminent defenders of the free exercise Mm -hmm. of religion, specifically in this country, but also around the world as well. So that's uh, an interesting point that you make calling us back to the Second Vatican Council. In terms of uh, the pluralism, one could say that our common good is rooted in a rich and robust conception of pluralism. Is that one way to think about the defense of religious liberty? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think we see that, you know, in individual cases. We can talk about that in the, in the Fulton case as well. But more generally, when legislatures and when the government sees this broad, pluralistic um, mix of religions, uh, you know, protecting different people's religious beliefs creates space. And that space is important. It, it allows people to um, think about, you know, deep questions and to grow in their own faith. And I, I think the founders put in two religion clauses. They put in the Establishment Clause, and they put in the Free Exercise Clause. So it said the government can't come in and force you to um, practice one religion. That's the Establishment Clause. But it also created the space for people to come to their own beliefs and to find the space to come to faith. And, And that's what the Free Exercise Clause does. It's not indifferentism. It's the ability to respond to the call of the Creator consistent with one's conscience. And freedom for me means freedom for thee. So uh, thanks for laying that out for us, Nick. That's really helpful. Let's turn to that Fulton case in which you were involved, a very, very important case, uh, not just for the uh, litigants involved in it, but uh, for the broader defense of religious liberty. Tell us a little bit about what happened uh, to give rise to that case in Philadelphia, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. Yeah, this case is about foster parents. It's about Sharon L. Fulton, who's the lead plaintiff, and Tony Sims Bush. And these women are single women of color who've been partnering with the Catholic Church to provide foster care in Philadelphia. Sharon L. has been doing it for 25 years. She's fostered over 40 children. But in March of 2018, the city of Philadelphia told Sharon L. and told Tony that they could no longer partner with Catholic Social Services, which is an arm of the Catholic Church, Um, in Philadelphia that provides foster care, because the Catholic agency, which is just one of 30 different private foster agencies in Philadelphia, can't endorse unmarried couples or same-sex married couples. And the reason is that part of the home study process to become a foster parent requires the agency to 
endorse and certify um, the, the couple's intimate relationship. And that's something the Catholic Church can't do. So if theoretically a same-sex couple were to come to Catholic Social Services seeking to foster and adopt, um, the agency would help them to find one of the other private agencies in the city that provides the same services. And I say hypothetically just because no same-sex couple had ever come to Catholic Social Services seeking to foster and adopt. Um, but even so, the city said, we'll no longer let you provide foster care in the city, and we're going to close you down and force all these parents to either find another agency or to stop fostering. This is a case, it seems to me, that there's a, where there's a clear connection between promoting religious liberty and, and uh, protecting the poor and upholding the common good. What does that look like in this case? How is protecting the, free to, the freedom to serve uh, for both these foster parents and Catholic social services? How is that upholding the common good? That's exactly right. So the city of Philadelphia testified that there were over 200 children who were in group homes and in institutional settings. So these are like boarding homes where you don't really get the same family-like environment, who could have been instead placed with loving foster families, like with Sharon L. Fulton and Tony Sims Bush. But the city was keeping these children in these kind of suboptimal settings, which they recognized. They said foster homes are better, um, but we're keeping these kids in institutional care instead of placing them with loving families. And they were doing that, as the U.S. government said when they intervened in this case, despite the Catholic Church, even though it was in the best interest of kids to put these children with loving families, there was no problem with the families, no problem with the homes. The city just didn't like Catholic Social Services' religious beliefs and excluded them from the foster care ministry for that reason. We're speaking with Nick Reeves. He's an attorney with the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and was involved in the recent case heard at the Supreme Court in early November, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. He's talking with us about that case and religious liberty more generally. Nick, in the in the Fulton case, just playing devil's advocate, uh, the city or the Catholic Social Services lost its license uh, to serve as a foster care provider. But the devil's advocate argument is that, well, they shouldn't have a license to discriminate. How do you respond to that criticism? You know, I think one thing that actually came out during the Supreme Court oral argument in this case is that the only people actually excluded from providing foster care are plaintiffs like Sharon L. Bolton and Tony Sims Bush, who chose to partner with the Catholic agency, and now the city is telling them that they can no longer continue their 25-year ministry to children in need. Even Justice Breyer, who might not normally be predisposed to support Catholic social services, was questioning the city and said, why did you try to close down this successful agency over a hypothetical question? He was like, wouldn't you, know, wouldn't you at least wait until there's some sort of real harm that's happened here? And I think that goes to the root of this, and it goes to your previous question as well. The city wasn't acting in the best interests of children or, or really trying to help um, children find more loving homes. It was, it was doing this because the city disliked Catholic Social Services' religious beliefs. And that was kind of the only reason. So, so I think that is, is the real discrimination, and that is the problem here. In thinking about this case, oftentimes our, our frame of reference is shaped by the media. Unfortunately, we get more narrative than we do news from uh, the media. And the, the narrative that you often see surrounding this case and similar cases is that these are attacks on gay rights. And so how did we get to a point where you know this idea of gay rights has trumped uh, rights that are actually in our state and federal constitutions, such as the free exercise of religion. And, and how do you see that conflict playing out with this new Supreme Court? 
Yeah, that, that's a really interesting issue and, and something that was discussed a few times at the oral argument as well. You know, we, we've seen a few cases, starting with Obergefell in 2015 and then Masterpiece Cake Shop a few years ago and then the Bostock decision last year. And, and the court is clearly grappling with how to protect First Amendment rights while still allowing, as Obergefell requires, still allowing same-sex couples to be married and to be full members of society. I think this case really puts that issue into sharp contrast, but also I think there's an easy solution. And I think the solution is to, you know, continue the status quo that has worked so well for years in Philadelphia. Like I said before, you know, the city isn't claiming that anyone is being prevented from fostering or adopting. There are 30 different private agencies and not a single same-sex couple has been prevented from fostering or adopting because of Catholic social services. Instead, there are at least three agencies that are specifically certified and have special training in order to serve LGBTQ families. So I think, you know, the way it plays out in this case is pretty straightforward. We allow pluralism and diversity in the foster care space, and that maximizes the number of homes available for foster children in need. In terms of how the Supreme Court is dealing with this issue, I, I think it'll it might take some some time to resolve, but I think there is some tension there in the Supreme Court's opinions where they're trying to both protect religious liberty but also kind of uphold what they said in Obergefell as well. I think it's clear what the resolution is in this Fulton case. If plaintiffs win, if are the foster parents and Catholic Social Services win then we go back to the status quo. Then uh, they continue going back to business as usual. But what are the implications of the foster parents and Catholic social services losing at the Supreme Court? What will that mean, practically speaking, for all sorts of ministries? Yeah, this is very concerning for us. And, you know, I think there are a couple different levels um, of, of implications. So the first kind of most obvious level is that the Supreme Court's decision in this case will likely have implications for other foster care agencies across the country. So we actually are involved in cases in Texas and in Michigan that raise similar issues. Um, and actually, the court in Michigan is specifically holding on to the case and waiting to decide it until after the Supreme Court rules. So I think, you know, whatever the Supreme Court says about whether Catholic foster care agencies and, and Christian foster care agencies as well, um, whether they can continue to serve those in need without violating their faith, that will have implications for all these different foster agencies. But taking a step back, we also saw at oral argument, the justices asking what kind of implications the city's argument would have for Catholic hospitals, who, you know, which can't perform abortions, or homeless shelters that are religious as well. And you know, the government's argument at the Supreme Court was that anytime an organization partners with the government to provide a social service, they basically are forfeiting their First Amendment rights. So the government seemed to admit, and and they said, we we can't draw a line between foster care and a hospital or foster care and a homeless shelter. Once the government is allowed to trample on someone's religious beliefs in one area, there's no reason it stops only in that area. So you know, I think the, the argument the government is making is troubling because of its implications for all kinds of social services that um, Catholics and other religious people have been providing for um, decades and, and centuries. 
this is a case with some breathtaking implications precisely for the reasons you just mentioned. But the court also has an opportunity to perhaps go beyond the narrow scope of the litigants in this case and, and decide a broader principle and revisit an old precedent, uh, Employment Division versus Smith. What was that case about and what is the issue at stake that the judges are con- justices are considering in Fulton with regard to broader protections for religious liberty? Employment Division versus Smith is a 30-year-old decision that, as soon as it was decided, drew a lot of criticism. Basically, a unanimous Congress passed a statute that was endorsed by the ACLU and signed into law by Bill Clinton, repudiating the Supreme Court's decision and putting in in place the previous standard, the standard that was before Smith, um, and returning federal law to that standard. So what Employment Division versus Smith said is that basically First Amendment protections for religious liberty are really just a non-discrimination principle. So instead of looking to the First Amendment as an actual protection that allows you to exercise your religion, Employment Division versus Smith said the First Amendment is satisfied as long as the government imposes the same restrictions on everybody. So, for example, as long as the government forces everybody to shave their beard in prison, there's no reason to grant a Muslim man who has a religious objection to shaving his beard. There's no reason to grant him an accommodation. So basically, you can, you can stamp out a religious practice simply by applying the same law to everybody. And we don't think that's how the founders intended the First Amendment of religion, or the First Amendment, which protects religion, to work. So that's what Employment Division versus Smith said. And we're hopeful the Supreme Court might reconsider that decision here. Nick, in terms of the broader protection of religious liberty generally, that term is in our media often has scare quotes around it. How do we go from days of RIFRA, which was signed by Bill Clinton, as you mentioned, to a time when religious liberty is put in scare quotes by journalists? And if we're to be successful in defending this uh, very reasonable principle that promotes pluralism and the common good, what do we need to do? Is it a branding problem? Is it uh, just a better need for more civics education, the type you're very ably providing for us on this show? What what do we have to do to, to continue to protect religious liberty? That's a great question, and I think it's probably all of the above. Um, You know, in terms of how we talk about religious liberty, I think some of the themes we touched on early in the podcast are really helpful for people to understand that, you know, religious liberty for someone you disagree with or for someone whose beliefs you might think are weird or, you know, that you don't really like, you know, what goes around comes around. That protects your own beliefs and your own conscience. So, you know, I think realizing that religious liberty is a value that helps everybody and that's important for everybody, especially in a country like ours that is still very religious, I think that's an important way to talk about this issue. And civics education is is really important and and something that is often missing in in curriculums these days and something we we do talk a lot about at Beckett as well. But I think one thing that we try to do that I think helps with this is, like we were saying before, taking cases from people of all different faiths. So so seeing a Jewish individual in court protecting their First Amendment rights, I think helps people who might disagree with a Christian on, on X or Y belief understand why the First Amendment is important and, and why that must be protected for everybody. 
That's a great point. And uh, we here in Minnesota, through the Minnesota Catholic Conference, the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, have joined Friend of the Court briefs on behalf of Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Agudath-affiliated Jewish congregations in New York, uh, because mm-hmm. precisely for what you're saying, Nick, freedom for me means freedom for thee, and we all have to stand together, especially people of faith in the defense of religious liberty. Now, oftentimes we'll see those stickers, those bumper stickers on people's cars coexist is the is, are the tensions in our society with regard to pluralism and religious liberty are they between people of faith it often seems it's more the people of faith have a certain solidarity and can hang together and really the dividing line is between people of faith and people who see religion as a threat to uh, the public order and and the secularists what what are your thoughts on that yeah we we have seen a lot of cooperation and that's been really an amazing thing you know getting to work at Beckett we do have clients all across the religious spectrum and and seeing you know, seeing like you were just saying, seeing different organizations filing amicus briefs or otherwise showing their support for someone who has religious beliefs completely different from their own. Seeing the Little Sisters of the Poor coming out in support of a, a Jewish organization or seeing one of our Muslim clients speaking out in support of a Catholic's religious beliefs, I think is, is really powerful. And, and we are seeing that. And I think, you know, as religious liberty tends to get attacked more in the media, like you were saying earlier, I think we, we see greater solidarity among people of faith who realize this is important and who realize that it's important to protect this for all their brothers and sisters. Nick, is there anything else that our listeners should know about uh, the Fulton case or the defense of religious liberty in general? I would, just, I would just say, in Fulton in particular, really what it comes down to is how do we best protect kids in need, and religious pluralism. And I think, you know, both of those issues are at the forefront of the court's decision in that case. And I think we're really optimistic that the justices understood the equities in the case. They understood that the only people being excluded are these these foster families who chose to partner with the Catholic agency. And they understood that in order to have a functioning civil society, it's important that Everybody who wants to provide these services, like Catholic social services, can continue to do so without having to violate their faith. Outstanding. Nick, where can people go to learn more about the Fulton case and Beckett? Yeah, so we have a a standalone website that talks all about the Fulton case, and that's www.freetofoster.com. And then you can also just go to beckettlaw.org, and that's where you can learn about Beckett more generally and all of our cases there. So freetofoster.com or beckettlaw.org. Nick Reeves, thanks so much for your able and articulate defense of religious liberty, your good work at Beckett and on the Fulton case. We wish you uh, the very best and grateful for coming. Uh, gratitude for you for coming on the show today. Jason, thanks so much for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, this week, one of our listeners left us a comment. She says she's concerned that some of our elected officials really strongly favor what she says is government control and interventions for people in need. And she says she feels that she is faced with either accepting socialism or being told by everyone that she doesn't care about people. So this comment kind of raises a few questions. 
what does the church say about the role of government in assisting those in need versus, say, the duty of individuals to provide charity for those in need? Is there too much or too little? And can government assistance and individual charity coexist? Well, oftentimes we're given these false either-or choices. It's either socialism or unrestrained free markets. So the Catholic social teaching here is our aid and our guide. It's the mental model we need to think through difficult questions. And when we start with Catholic social teaching, we understand that politics, the goal of politics, the why of politics, is to promote human dignity and the common good. And when we start with those two principles, then we say, okay, well— Although society has the primary responsibility to uphold those things, that the task of legislation can promote them as well. So the state can get involved when society fails to provide the right level of distributive justice or does not protect human dignity as it should. And human dignity uh, requires having uh, basic access to health care, food, shelter, um, these sorts of minimal standards that uh, allow for a decent human existence. And again, when society fails to provide those, when people are not able to access those in normal the court, normal course of social life through the economy, then the state has a duty and responsibility to step in to promote human dignity and the common good. And part of that is making sure there is distributive justice. And if we understand the common good is a society of right relationships, distributive justice is important in making sure that we have right relationships in terms of the distribution of goods, that people have the basic necessities for what they need. And so it's not simple redistributionism, but it does mean that we have people have access to basic things like shelter, food, housing assistance, health care. So our government does do these things. And very few people argue against them altogether. It's just a matter of what's the right measure, what protects human moral agency and doesn't create the nanny state, as the, the term goes, or socialism. We have an economy that doesn't sap too many resources or overtax the citizenry so that people have resources to promote jobs, which is the best way out of poverty. But at the same time, government does have a role and responsibility to promote distributive justice and at the same time provide a social safety net to ensure that people have those most basic needs. And so Catholic social teaching, again, is that resource and that mental framework that gives us the right principles for thinking through these things and cutting through the and the unfortunate uh, right-left divide, which is an either-or. Um, the Catholic Church proposes it's a both-and. We need markets and we need freedom and moral agency, but we also need to make sure that people are protected in the basic necessities of life and that a measure of distributive justice is promoted. Thanks for really helping us understand that concept that it's it's both and. So what else do we have this week? Ways that people might be able to start bridging the gap between faith and public life. Well, in Minnesota, we're going to be facing a budget crisis, and there's going to be big questions about what we need to cut. How do we raise revenue to pay for our budget? We have a constitutional mandate in Minnesota that our budget be balanced. And because of COVID restrictions, shutdowns, the lack of economic activity, we're going to be facing a significant deficit because the revenues haven't been coming in at the normal and expected rate from which they were forecasted in prior months and years. And so that's going to put a big debate in the front of our legislators about what to cut, how to raise revenue, who bears the burden. Because a lot of our state budget is expenditures are related to human services and education. Those are the things that are often talked about. The church's perspective is that we can't balance our budget on the backs of the poor. 
and at the same time, we need to right-size our spending to meet the most basic needs. And so you're going to hear from the church uh, during these conversations that we need to put a circle of protection around those most basic programs that help people in need, and that's going to be a cornerstone of the conversations around the budget. But the work of charity, the work of assisting those in need simply isn't political or legislative. It also comes from the love of neighbor. Government can't love people. It can provide a basic measure of justice, and that's what these programs do. But it's up to us to love our neighbor, and one of the basic things you can do is find a food shelf during this holiday season and give people access to food that they need to support their families. We're hearing stories all over the country of lines and lines of lines of people at food banks. Uh, The need is incredibly great right now. So the way we can start is not just thinking about the important assistance programs at the state and federal level and watch out for those as they become big political issues in 2021, but also start the work right now and remediate some of those challenges and those needs by donating to your local food shelf. Get creative and then on social media, share with us the ways in which you are assisting in building that bridge between faith and public life, whether in your works of charity or in your works of justice. The church walks with two feet, the hands of charity and the hands of justice. Share with others how you're doing both. Use the hashtag bridge builder. Again, that's hashtag bridge builder for your work um, contributing to food shelves and working with food shelves in a time of need. That's all the time we have for today, but for everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe that you always know when a new episode comes out. If you're inclined, leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics can build the bridge between faith and public life. Send us your ideas for the Bricklayer segment. How might Catholics start to build the bridge between faith and public life? And make sure to let us know what questions you have, too, for our mailbag segment. You can send those to show at mncatholic.org. Again, that address is show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in, idiot, the Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kitsipiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed Advent.